0: Please turn with me to Romans chapter 4, we'll read together verses 13 through 16, and uh, while you're turning there, let me just quickly say thank you for praying this last week. Um, You only prayed half as hard as you should have, and I know that because I only got half done what I had hoped to get done. But, uh, but it was, I've never done this before, so I think my expectations were a little out of line with reality. Um, but it was, it, was a great, uh, it was a great time. I'm, I'm really well underway, and I um, just want to encourage you to keep praying as I try to get these manuscripts into a, a publishable form. So thank you for your prayers, and I just wanted to take a minute to give you a bit of an update uh, and to say thanks. So thanks. Now... Let's look at Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. We're looking at uh, Abraham and this life of faith. And want to focus then on this last sort of installment, if you will, in this series, uh, the outcome of faith. And so let's read verses 13 to, to 16. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. This is God's word, and we thank God for it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, do please help us as we come to your word, help us to, to wrestle with it. But I I pray so much this morning that in the midst of wrestling with it, and in the midst of trying to understand what it is you're saying here our hearts the hearts of your people would be greatly encouraged and uh, and lord for those among us who 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 really find it hard to be hopeful uh, who find themselves sort of swallowed up in uncertainty and 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 even darkness and and maybe even find themselves on the edge of despair. I I pray that somehow, through this passage, through this, your word, uh, some hope would be imparted to them, but but truly to all of us. So come by your spirit, help us to see, help us to understand, and above everything else, help us to believe. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. For the last uh, several weeks, we've been looking at... um, The subject of faith. We've looked at Abraham, as the scriptures do, as the example of faith. He's the model of faith. He's the model of faith here in Romans. He's a model of faith for Jesus. He's a model of faith for James. Uh, He's a model of faith in the book of Hebrews. Everywhere, um, Abraham is is the example for us. And what we've sort of been doing in these uh, messages is, is kind of analyzing the faith of Abraham, uh, w- which is a model for us. If we want to know what kind of what faith is and what it looks like as it begins to get worked out in somebody's life, here's a great person, in fact, the ideal person uh, in one sense to look at. I mean, the truly ideal person is Jesus, right, who, who lived every moment of every day of his life, the life of faith. Um, but he never stumbled, <laughs> He never fell. So there's a very real sense in which we look at Abraham, uh, not in any way, in any way, discounting that Jesus is our ultimate example. We look at Abraham because Abraham stumbled a lot. Stumbled a lot. Threw up all over himself, if you want to use some really graphic kinds of terms. Made a mess of things repeatedly, which feels a whole lot more like my life, and I suspect yours too. So what we've been looking at and they have looked at, is first simply the nature of faith, that faith is trust in the promise of God and the person of God. It is trust in the promise of God and the person of God. Last week, we looked at what faith isn't, that it isn't optimism, it's not faith in self, it's not faith in an outcome, it's not faith in a system of belief or anything else, trying to underscore this point that faith really is faith in the promise and the person of God, the infinite personal God who is really there. God is really there, unseen to us, which is what makes it tricky to trust him and believe in him, but really there nevertheless and nonetheless. Uh, And then the other thing we've looked at is the fact that faith is something that grows. It's a growing thing. Um, And we see that especially clearly in Abram's life. Um. He grew in faith, and we said that faith grows by faithing. (laughs) Belief grows by believing. It doesn't doesn't grow by taking a pill. It doesn't grow by reading a book, although it's very, very clear that our faith can be fed and nourished by reading good stuff. Our faith is strengthened and nourished by reading the Scriptures. But, But bottom line, faith has to be exercised, right? It's fed. It gets nutrients from the Scriptures, and from other great stuff, but faith only gets stronger as it's exercised. And God just has this way, as he did with Abraham, of throwing us into these messes which require of us that we got to believe him, that we have to trust him and entrust ourselves to him. And so faith grows by believing. Now, here's where we are this week. We've looked at all of that stuff. Now, we're at the place where we're asking the question, what is the outcome of faith? What is the the final outcome of faith? And it's in this 13th verse, the promise to Abram and all his offspring is that he would be the heir of the world. What's what's the outcome of faith? Now, if you think about Abram, you really think about his life, uh, maybe it seems a little bit crass and a little bit selfish to put it in these terms but if you think about Abram's life all of those years that century from the time he's 75 until he's 175 all of those years of silence he's wandering around uh, in this land that was never going to be his he was never going to own it the most he was ever going to get in this land was a tomb for his wife and then a tomb for himself that's all he was ever going to get all of those years of silence you have to think don't you that at some point along the way, he's asking himself the question, when and where is the payoff? <laughs> when and where is the payoff? I left my family. I left my home. I left everything that was familiar. I'm out here in the middle of nowhere. Where is the payoff? It's like Kevin Costner in Field of Dreams. You Remember that? It's a great film. I just I love that film. I just love to watch it every once in a while when I need a good cry. You know, it's just really a great film. Great film. And you remember at the end, uh, Kevin Costner's character, Ray Kinsella, you know, the cornfield is out there, and and these guys are coming and going from the cornfield, and, and he wants to go out in the cornfield, and his question to Shoeless Joe Jackson is, what's in it for me? Where's the payoff? What's in it for me? And and he feels justified in asking that question because he did the same thing that Abram did. He's made a fool of himself. He's run all over the country listening to a voice that nobody else can hear. Right? He's put his farm at risk. He's put his family at risk. Everything is at risk because of this voice, and he wants to know where the payoff is. Look, it's an inevitable question. It's an inevitable question. Where's the payoff? What's the final outcome of this thing? I think when we're younger in life, as Christians, even as we're not Christians, we have a lot of optimism, a lot of hopefulness. And then life begins to chip away at that optimism, doesn't it? Uh, Life begins to make an assault on that optimism and that idealism. And you wake up asking, is this all there is? Is this it? Is there any payoff for the Christian? The Christian has to ask the question. It's inevitable. What's the payoff? Here's something I'm convinced of. I'm convinced, and this is a whole sermon in itself, so just accept this from me, and I'll preach the sermon if you want me to. I'm convinced that God has planted in the soul of every human being in the midst of this fallen world A longing for a payoff. A longing for a payoff. A longing for utopia. A longing for the perfect world. I think it drives our politics. I think it drives our social and humanitarian institutions. I think it drives our economic theory. I think it drives everything. May not agree with particular policies, may not agree with particular economic theories. That's not my point right here. What's beneath it all is a longing for utopia. It is an inescapable thing, and it's there because God has planted it within us. I think it shows up in popular culture. And I'm belaboring this because I want to underscore this point. There is a real connection between what God says in verse 13 about Abram and the outcome of faith and what is deep within your soul. It shows up in funny places, subtle kinds of places in popular culture. In 1982, just a couple of examples. In 1982, Donald Fagan, singer-songwriter, released an album entitled Nightfly. And the song that, that got the most airtime from that particular album was the song IGY. I period, G period, Y period. For I never knew what it meant. So I Googled it, I wikipedia it. And IGI stands for the International Geophysical Year. IGY. What in the world? is the International Geophysical Year. Well, it started July 1st, 1957, and it went to December 31st, 1958, during the Cold War. And Donald Fagan wrote a song reflecting on the IGY. And what the IGY was, was this international cooperation among all of these countries in these 11 Earth Sciences. Sputnik was launched during that time, for those of you who are old enough to remember Sputnik. Spandex was developed during that period of time. Solar energy was used for the first time in 1958. It was futuristic, and Donald Fagan wrote this song, Imagining himself as a young boy in the 1950s during the IGY and projecting out into the future. And listen to the lyrics of the song. Okay, it pops up in places. Standing tough under stars and stripes, we can tell this dreams in sight. You've got to admit it. At this point in time, it's clear. The future looks bright on that train a train that he envisioned running from New York to Paris under the Atlantic Ocean. People thought about these things. On that train, it's all graphite and glitter. Undersea, by rail, 90 minutes from New York to Paris. Well, by 76, 1976, will be A OK. What a beautiful world this will be! What a glorious time to be free. Get your ticket to that wheel in space while there's time, the International Space Station. The fix is in. You'll be a witness to that game of chance in the sky. You know we've got to win. Here at home, we'll play in the city, powered by the sun, perfect weather for a streamlined world. There'll be spandex jackets, one for everyone. Ooh. What a beautiful world this will be. What a glorious time to be free. On that train, all graphite and glitter, undersea by rail, 90 minutes from New York to Paris, and then there's this voice sort of covering in the background. More leisure for artists everywhere. And then this last verse, a just machine to make big decisions. A just machine machine to make big decisions programmed by fellows with compassion and vision. We'll be clean when their work is done. We'll be eternally free, yes, and eternally young. What a beautiful world it will be. What a glorious time to be free. It's inescapable. Let me give you another one, perhaps a little bit more familiar. You didn't know this song was about heaven until three and a half years ago in preaching through Titus. I told you that this song was about heaven. Those of you who were here to hear the lyrics. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. Somewhere. Somewhere, over the rainbow, bluebirds fly. Birds fly over the rainbow. Why? Why then, oh why, can't I? If happy little bluebirds fly above the rainbow, why, oh why, can't I? There is planted in you a longing for a payoff. The question is, where do you find it? Where do you find it? I labor all of this because the answer to the question is not found in popular music and it's not found in fellas with compassion and vision who program a big machine to make just decisions by which this universe, this world, your lives will be run and managed. The Bible makes clear, very clear, that the thing you long for the most deeply, a new world, a new order, a place of peace and blessedness and abundance, is in the Redeemer, who has come to crush the head of the evil one and eradicate evil from the realm. This 13th verse tells us that the promise to Abraham is that he would inherit and his descendants would inherit something far bigger, far more significant, far more expansive, far more glorious than a little sliver of real estate along the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. This verse tells us that Abram was going to inherit the world, the world. I want you to think with me for just a few minutes after all of that about Genesis chapter 22 and a very striking passage, which I confess to you, I never saw before this week. I swear to you, this verse was not in my Bible until this week. But I want you to look at Genesis chapter 22. And while you're turning there, let me just give you the background to this. Thinking again about Abram's life. Remember that the promise made to Abram, the promise that's being alluded to in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. The promise that was made to Abram was that he would be given a land. If you remember Genesis 12, Abram was called to leave his country, leave his family, leave his father's house and go to a land that the Lord would show him. And so he goes. And when he gets there in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, God tells him that he's going to give this land to his descendants. That's the first of five times that this promise is repeated. It's repeated again in Genesis 13. You remember the story of Abram and Lot. Abram and Lot are both blessed and prospered by God and their families grow and their flocks grow and they begin to have conflict with one another. And so Abram says to Lot, pick the place you want to live. And they're up on this ridge of land that overlooks the Jordan Valley. And, and Lot looks down into the valley and he sees the green, lush, fertile rain-drenched Jordan Valley, and he says, I think I'll go down there. He takes the best of the land, and after Lot leaves, God repeats the promise and says, and you can read this, it's in Genesis 13, God repeats the promise and says to him, look around, look in every single direction. You've just given up this land, but I'm telling you, this land is going to belong to you and your descendants after you. That's the second time. And then in chapter 15, the promise is repeated again. And then it's repeated again in chapter 17. But then when you come to chapter 22, there is this striking thing, this striking adjustment that occurs in chapter 22. And you know the situation in chapter 22. This is the great test of Abram's faith. Here, Abram has been growing in faith. He's been learning to trust God more and more. He confronts adversity. He confronts famines. He confronts his own sin and his foolishness. He's complicit with his wife. Obviously complicit with his wife in the scheme to derive a son through Hagar. Through all of that mess, Abram continues to grow. And at the end of his life, God tests him by calling upon him to give up Isaac, this son, in whom is contained the promise. If Isaac dies, the promise dies with him. He's his only son. He's the one whom God has said the promise through him, the, son, the promise will be fulfilled. And so Abram goes to the mountain. He goes to Mount Moriah. He goes to the place where God has said this sacrifice is to be offered. And Abram is faithful and he obeys God. And after the test, God speaks to Abram. This is beginning at verse 15 of Genesis 22. And he says, and the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Right? You know the greater fulfillment of that, don't you? The cross where the father does not withhold his son, his only son. He spares Isaac, the only son of Abram, pointing ahead to the cross where God himself will not spare his son, his only son. But God says, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your, listen to this, and your offspring shall possess the gate of, of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Here's the change. Here's the significant change that occurs in the promise. Four times, God has said to Abram, I'm going to give you the land, I'm going to give you the land, I'm going to give you the land, I'm going to give you the land. Here the fifth time, he says, your offspring will possess the gates of, Of your enemies. Three things. Number one. Very quickly. Number one. Gates are significant in this time and place. Gates you find in fortresses. Fortresses are built as places of defense. In those days the best offense was a good defense. If you have strong gates. You can keep your attackers at bay. You can keep them at a distance. If you have weak gates, they break the gates down, they flood into the fortress, and they take over. This is imagery of warfare, folks. The second thing, implicit in the first, possessing the gates presupposes conflict. It presupposes warfare. It presupposes an attack and most strikingly and most significantly. Notice in verse 17 that the plural, offspring, plural, becomes a personal pronoun, singular. Your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. Your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies enemies. See, that doesn't strike us. I've read Genesis. I preached through Genesis. I love Genesis. It's never struck me before. Does this language sound at all familiar to you? Does this echo any other passages in the Bible that might be familiar to you? If you've been around here for any length of time at all, you've heard references to Genesis three fifteen and 16 ad nauseum. The initial promise of God that there would be animosity and enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And out of that conflict and animosity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman one one person one descendant would emerge and that one descendant would crush the head of the serpent while being bruised on his heel by the serpent he shall crush your head you shall bruise his heel This verse, if I'm Abraham, if I'm a Jewish person reading Genesis, I hear this, I see this shift from the plural, all of these offspring being singled down, narrowed down to one particular offspring who will possess the gate of his enemies. All of this resonates with Genesis 3. And all of it underscores this theme that is constant throughout the Old Testament, that God is going to raise up a conqueror. And when the conqueror comes, He will possess the gates of his enemies, his enemies. He will crush the head of the serpent. He will eradicate evil from the realm. What's the promise to Abram? It's this. Look, Abram, you're going to have countless descendants. Stars, sand on the sea, dust of the earth, too numerous to count. You're not going to be able to keep up with them. There'll be so many across all the centuries, all the generations, even the millennia, descendants everywhere. But out of all of those countless descendants, one of your offspring will arise as a warrior, as a conqueror, and he will wage war against his enemies. And he will conquer them. He will possess their gates. The result of that is verse 18. In your offspring, in that offspring, in that conqueror who possesses the gates of his enemies, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations will be blessed. Paul understood this. That's why in Galatians 3.16, as he talks about this promise, this promise of offspring, he says this, Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abram and his offspring. It does not say, and to offspring, meaning many, but referring to one and to your offspring. That is Christ. Paul understood this promise to be narrowed down to this one person, Jesus Christ, who came into the world with the express purpose of vanquishing the evil one and vanquishing evil and eradicating them from the realm. Paul understood it. So Abram grew in faith. And as he grew in faith, folks... He was looking well beyond, as I said, he was looking well beyond that little sliver of real estate at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Hebrews makes this clear. Hebrews 11.10, he was looking to the city whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews 11.16 tells us he was looking for a better country, a heavenly one. All of what happens in the Old Testament points beyond itself to its fulfillment in Christ, its greater fulfillment in Christ. There's so many examples of this. I'll just invite you. There's an invitation in the bulletin for those of you who have been around this church for five years, four years, three years, two years. There's an invitation to come to the inquirer's class If you've been at CTK for a while, this is a great opportunity to meet people and refresh your understanding of the beliefs and vision of our church. Okay, so it's an open invitation for you next week to come. Okay? Because next week, what we're going to do is look at example after example after example of how Jesus Christ fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. They're everywhere. You know the Where's Waldo book, where you can only find Waldo in one place and he's hidden in a little corner under a boat, under a bush somewhere? You don't have to do that with the Old Testament. Jesus is everywhere, He's everywhere. That's why when we read, and I've said this before, mentioned this to you before, It's why when you read the story of David and Goliath, the worst possible thing you can say to your children is, David was a good guy, you go be a good guy, you go be a conqueror for God, just like David was. That's the worst possible thing you can say from that story. The thing to say from that story is, The purpose of God is to send someone in weakness and frailty who with limited resources will cast a stone against the great demonic forces of evil and he will bring them down. There's a greater David who is coming. Or, and this is one of my favorites, 1 Kings chapter 4, this description of Solomon's reign. You've got to read this this week. These descriptions of the abundance of Solomon's reign and all of the horses that he had and all of the barns that he had and how people would come from the east and the west and the north and the south. They would come to hear Solomon speak his Proverbs, speak his wisdom. And every person had his own piece of ground, was given his own place in the the kingdom of Solomon. What's that about? Is that just a historical reflection? No, no, Solomon's name comes from the Hebrew word Shalom. It's a picture, it's a snapshot of the reign of Shalom, the reign of peace when the greater Solomon comes and eradicates evil and establishes his rule and reign, brings his peace, his kingdom permanently to the world. What is the outcome of faith? What was the outcome of faith for Abram? What was Abram looking for? Abram was looking. He he heard this from God. He believed this from God. One of my offspring is going to come. And he's going to smash down the gates of his enemies. And you know what is held in a fortress? Prisoners. Prisoners. And when the assaulting and attacking force comes and breaks down the gates of the enemies, what do they do? They vanquish the enemy and they release the captives. Remember when Jesus asked his disciples, who who do people say I am? Well, some say you're Jeremiah and some say you're Bob and some say you're this guy and some say you're whomever. Yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says... You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, I tell you the truth, Peter, flesh and blood haven't revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, and here is more. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not withstand its assault. Where does that imagery come from? Why does Jesus employ that imagery? Genesis 22. Genesis 22. He is the descendant of Abraham who makes his assault on the kingdom of darkness, who breaks down those bars and sets the prisoners free. That's why when he comes in Mark's gospel, I've mentioned this. That's why he we, we comes in Mark's gospel, he comes proclaiming the kingdom and the first miracle he performs is the miracle of delivering a demon-possessed man. You know what that is? It's a declaration of war. It's a declaration of war. The warrior has come and he has begun the process of restoring a kingdom of freedom and peace and righteousness. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, when he's finished, he'll turn it over to the Father so that God may be all in all. Do you know why you're here today? If you're a Christian, do you know why you're here today? There's one explanation. The conquering king has come and he's broken down the bars. He's destroyed the gates. He's reached into the forest, fortress, maybe the forest, And he's rescued you out of it to make you his own. What was Abram looking for? He was looking. He was looking for the one descendant. The one offspring who would come and vanquish the evil one. And he has come. Folks, what we're waiting for is not a world, as I said before, is not a world run by a just machine programmed by fellows with compassion and vision. See, the problem with the machines that men make is that they're made by men. The world that I am looking for The world that deep in your heart you are looking for is a new world, a new world order in which Jesus, the conquering king, fully and completely rules and reigns in righteousness and peace and blessedness and prosperity. And that's what Abram was looking for. I've got my dead white European friends here with me and I don't have time to quote them, but I will just tell you that John Murray and John Calvin, the world, the history of the church is filled with great Johns. They understood this this way. I shared this with the inquirers class and this is my closing story shared this with the Enquirer's class this morning. Barb and I were doing what we do almost every Saturday evening. We were walking the beach last night. We take a picnic down to the beach. It's a wonderful way to decompress. I highly recommend it to you. It is a great way to get ready for worship, frankly. This is my father's world. And to my listening ear, everything around me speaks and shouts of his beauty and goodness and grace and kindness. So we do that on Saturday night and we're walking down the beach and we pass a couple walking on the beach also. And this guy says, tell me, tell me, where is it better than this? I am such a stupid. I I told the class, I said, yeah, isn't this great? This just doesn't get any better than this this beautiful sunset and these clouds, it just doesn't get any better than this. And it did. It reminded me of that old Milwaukee commercial or whatever it was from three or 30 years ago. The guy sitting around the campfire tipping their suds saying, doesn't get any better than this. (laughs) Oh, I could kick myself for not having said, you know, my friend, I don't know if you'll understand this, but it does get better than this. It gets way, way better than this. There is a new world coming. And when that new world gets here, you won't limp down the beach like you are now. You won't lose your eyesight so that you can't see the sunsets anymore. You won't lose your sense of smell like I have so that you can't smell flowers anymore. There is a world coming freed from the curse, delivered from its bondage to decay and death. There is a world coming in which people will dwell in the midst of beauty and splendor and wonder forever. No death, no tears, no crying, no sadness. You, together with Abraham, who have entrusted yourselves to the seed of Abraham, will inherit that world. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Keep this before us. I pray, in fact, that a recognition of this new world that is coming, a new world order that will break upon us instantly and powerfully, I pray that the prospect of that world which is to come would, in fact, energize us to live faithfully in this one. And, Lord Jesus, as we, by your grace, Seek to live faithfully in the midst of this one. May people around us smell, may they smell the aroma of the world to come. Bless and prosper us, this band of brothers and sisters. To that end, we pray in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me and we'll sing together, ye servants of God, your master proclaim. And publish abroad his marvelous name, number 165.